So glad that you are here this morning, and we're going to be back in Matthew. Just kidding. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. We're going to keep floating along in there. We're going to finish out chapter 1 today because there's so many cool things that happened that I want to share with you this morning before we even get to chapter 2 because that's really when everything really gets going. But I'm glad that you're here this morning. How many of y'all, when you're kind of in the waiting, you find yourself twiddling your thumbs and getting anxious, right? You, you want something to do. And I think one of the biggest, worst things that we have right now are our phone that has apps and games on it because we've lost the, the ability to have conversation in the waiting because we're too busy poking at our phone. Or maybe it's just me. Okay, just I felt a little lonely right there. But it's what we do, right? Or if we're at home and we've got free time, we pop on the TV and we see what mindless thing we can watch. And when we're waiting, we want to be actively doing something. It's just the way that we're geared, sadly. So our question this morning is this, what are we doing in the waiting while we're waiting for Jesus? Because we should be waiting for his return. I mean, scripture tells us we should be talking about it. We should be looking for it. We should be waiting and hoping for it. There are things that we should be doing. But in the meantime, before he comes back, now what are we doing? Well, I I go and do what I want to do. Really? Maybe we shouldn't be doing what we want to do unless it's wanting to serve Christ. As our lives get busier, we should be more focused on him. As our lives slow down, we should be more focused on him. In everything that we're doing, we always should be focused on him, especially in the waiting, because in the waiting is where we get in trouble. In the waiting is that idle time that we get distracted and we get our focus shifted on something else. And so, in the waiting is so important. And we talked a lot about that last week. This week, we're going to see a little bit of what the disciples did in the waiting. And it's time to act in the waiting. It's time to act. There are many of us Christians that have been saved a long time. We've been waiting on Jesus a long time. And we are just done acting and doing things. Because now we're just waiting. Well, my rule of thumb is, if you're not dead yet, God's not done. And so, if... You're in the waiting, which if you're a believer, you are, which means most of us in this room are waiting on the return of Christ. It's time for us to do something. Now, many of you are thinking, oh, oh, what does that mean? Do I have to preach? No, I'll I'll handle that. Does that mean I have to sing? No, we have very capable singers unless you want to try out and come and be a part or maybe play uh, an instrument. Does that mean I have to work with little kids? Yes, it absolutely means you have to work with little kids. Brandy is sitting right over here, and everybody, you think I'm kidding? We can always use workers. And I know that doing stuff for Christ is, is a little bit different because it's not the norm. It's not what the world says we should be doing, but this collection of stories and historical documents, this book that we call the Bible that we use to guide our life is full of challenges, of commands, of precepts that we should be doing in the waiting. Amen is probably a good point right there because the problem is we know that, but we don't live that. We think that 
as long as I do my time on a Sunday morning in my hour and a half and I give my, my tithe and I read my Bible when I can and I pray when it's convenient, that that's enough. And I'm here to tell you this morning is it might be enough, but God's not looking for just enough. God wants it all. And that means in the waiting, we should be doing something. When we're doing something, we should be focusing on him. We should learn how to actively wait and actively pursue him. Now, it sounds like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. But it's what we're called to do. There are seasons where you're going to be working for him and seasons where you're waiting on him. But never let it be said that he's waiting on us. It is time that we as believers begin to act in our waiting. So let's go to Acts chapter 1 and let's see what these guys do because there's a lot of things that take place in chapter 1. Remember we have Jesus speaking to them, giving them the command to, hey, you know what you're supposed to be doing. I'm leaving you, the, the helper's coming, now it's time to wait because he's coming. In verse 9, here's where we find our story in Acts chapter 1. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in wide apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Does that not strike you as a dumb question? It does me. We just watched a man float up into the space. And you're asking me what I'm standing here looking at. He says, the same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pause there and let's, let's pick this apart a little bit. The first question that I see here is these two men in white apparel, most likely angels, talking to those that were there as Jesus ascended. And they ask him, what are you staring at? You ever been caught staring and people ask? That's embarrassing. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's the worst. And what do we tell our kids? Don't stare. Don't stare. Right? Because staring is not polite. But this is a little different. Jesus, their best friend, their leader, their Messiah, who they watched die, be buried, and now again for 40 days they've had him in their presence. And now he gives us a wonderful command of, hey, wait, because the Spirit is coming. But when he gets here, you've got a job to do. Start in Jerusalem, then work your way out into Judea and Samaria, and then work your way out into the uttermost parts of the earth, going and making disciples. Not just having people pray the prayer, but making disciples and baptizing them and teaching them in the things that I've taught you. That's what they were tasked to do. And then they watch him literally float up into the clouds. Yes, thank you. Spectacular. Amazing. We've never seen anything like that. We've watched lots of people fall from the sky. With a parachute, right? Never have we seen anybody just rise up on their own, straight up into the air. And these two men ask him, what are you staring at? And so think about this. As they're watching, they're thinking about these things. They wanted to see what was going to happen. Is he going to fall? Is he going to come back down? Is he just going up for a little while and is there going to be fireworks? Is there going to be something playing? Like, what's happening with this guy? 
Where is he going? They also know that they were asked for the help to wait for the helper to come, right? When did he say that he was coming? Maybe they watch him leave. They were maybe waiting for the helper to come down. Maybe it's an elevator system. One goes up, one comes down. I mean, put yourself in these guys' shoes. All of this stuff is new. The things that they've just experienced in the last 40 to 50 days has just been mind-blowing for them. And they're watching their best friend go up into this space, up into heaven. And they want to know, what, what is going on? Maybe they're waiting for the kingdom to come because they know at some point it's going to happen. Maybe they're standing there thinking, okay, now that he's gone, it's going to happen. Or maybe they were just amazed. I think it was all of the above and some. I think they were so astounded as to what they had seen. They were so overwhelmed by the presence of their Savior rising up into the air on a cloud or into the clouds. I think they were just mesmerized. And it's almost as if you've ever had that moment where you're just kind of captivated and somebody kind of snaps their fingers and you kind of, you know, snap to it and you kind of come back to reality. I kind of feel like that's what's happening. I don't think the question that these two men ask are obnoxious. I think it's a reasonable question. Guys, what are you doing? Like, let's get back to reality. Let's get back to what we know to do. Let's get back to what he told you you should be doing. And so many times we as believers, we see God do something spectacular and we get so caught up with that one event that we fail to move forward to see other events. I hear all the time, and I've watched churches, I, I have churches that I was belong to, I've watched them just begin to dissipate because they're so caught up in the way we used to do things. God moved this way, so that's the only way he can move, and so we've got to keep doing it that way because that's the way he moved then. Yes and yes, but what if there's more? What if that was just a step to get you to the next step so you could experience something even bigger? To get you to the next step to experience something even more spectacular? Please, church, let's not get stuck in what we've always done. Let's keep looking for what he has next and keep moving in that direction. Now, again, many of you are starting to freak out a little bit. You're thinking, oh my goodness, he's going to change everything and now we're going to be this big mega church and be... Calm down. Here's what I want. I want God to continue to do great things. And I don't want to stand in his way because I'm so caught up in the way that I used to do things. I want to see him continue to be magnified and glorified for his word to be preached, for the song of our lips to be sweet to his ears. But I want to keep moving towards him. I don't want to be stagnant in the things that we've done. I want to keep moving and if that means we've got to change some things, fine. But we will not change the word and we're not going to change our standards based on scripture. That will always be the same. Why? Because they're rooted in him. And he's never changing. And these men are standing there watching this spectacular event. And I think they were so caught up with what was going on that they forgot that there's something to be done. And these two men gently came by them and said, hey, what you looking at? That's pretty spectacular, isn't it? But don't forget, 
The same guy that you just watched go up, remember he told you he will come again in the same way. Therefore, they're insinuating, get busy. Don't stand here and wait because it may not be in your lifetime. You do what you know you're supposed to do and let God handle the timing of everything else. I love that thought line because I can get caught up in the here and now and forget that there's more to come. It's hard for us to plan ahead and look forward. We get tired. We get comfortable in the way that we experience God to move, right? And that's the way we like it. Please don't put God in a box. Don't limit him that he can only speak in a certain way and do things in a certain order. God does what God does and will always do what God does, however he chooses. Look at these verses. When we kind of get in the waiting and we don't snap out of and we get distracted from our past, look what happens. In Exodus 32, when the people saw that Moses was delayed coming down from the mountain, remember Moses was up talking to God and God was giving him the Ten Commandments, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, this, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. You ever get so distracted by an event that you forget about the fact that there was something behind that event making it happen? They were so focused on Moses that they forgot that it was God that used Moses to lead them out of Egypt and that the same God that led them out of Egypt was the same God that was going to do magnificent things coming down the road. And because they were distracted in their waiting, because they were distracted in what they were so stuck on, the way that God had done it the first time, and it wasn't how they wanted it to be doing, they got caught up and they went a different direction. Sadly, it's why I believe churches are dying. Because they're not open to what God may want them or need them to do in the moment. I think many Christians stagnate because they've had that one event and that's all they can handle. They don't want any more. And yet God's pleading with us, no, I've got more for you. I've got some edges I need to rough out. I've got some, some things I need you to accomplish. I've got some people I need you to be a part of their life. But what we do is we get so self-centered and we get so focused on me and what I want and what God should do for me that I forget to look ahead and see what he has coming down the road. These people were being led out of slavery into a land that was not theirs for it to be given to them, the land flowing of milk and honey. How could they forget that? In the spectacular way that they were led out of Egypt with the, the ten plagues and the, being led by the pillar of fire and a cloud and watching the Red Sea split. How could they forget that? It's easy for us to look back at them and say, are you kidding me? And yet we do the same thing every day. God did something spectacular in your life, but the next big thing that comes up, it just wrecks you. Why? The same God that helped you back there is the same God that's looking to help you right here. The same God that allowed that horrific thing in your life, that allowed you to walk through it and be where you needed to be, is the same God that is allowing this next thing into your life because he knows what he can do in you and through you and around you. But when we get stuck in our own little rut, we get caught up and we get distracted. 
Look at this next verse, Luke 21. Jesus says, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. Let me ask you a question. What are we supposed to be waiting for? Jesus, his return. Jesus says, be careful that you don't get distracted in the waiting, the day that's coming, and it comes on you unexpectedly because you got distracted in the waiting. And you allowed your life to be a part of things that were not who he was or who he is. We have a lot of work to do and a lot of paying attention to do. Because he is coming. And we should be waiting for that in everything that we do and everything that we think and everything that we see, hear, speak, everything. But sadly, that's a struggle for many of us to live that way. Because we are battling me. The me that lives inside of all of us. Let's go back to the scripture. <clears throat> Verse 12. Then they, these were the guys that were on the mountain with Jesus. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. There's a lot of people here, right? And I don't believe that it's just the disciples because we see that there are women there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. I think there are other disciples that are also there, just not the main 12 that went with Jesus as he ascended into heaven. And this isn't where they're living. This is just kind of their gathering space. Maybe at night they go home, but during the morning and during the day they come back and they just come together. And what are they doing? Are they gossiping? Are they planning? Are they thinking about what they should have done? No, no, no. They're praying and giving their supplication to God. They are just making their wants and needs known. When's the last time you got together with a group of friends and just prayed? Well, I don't, I don't like to pray out loud. Why not? Well, I don't, I don't know what to say. Wait, you don't know how to have a conversation? What if I say the wrong thing? God knows your heart. Listen, we've, we've got to get over this fear of speaking to our Savior out loud. And I know you're looking at me thinking, well, Alan, that's easy for you to say. You talk about Jesus all the time, out loud in front of people. Yeah, but it's terrifying. What if this is a group of friends that you are just comfortable with? What if it's just a simple conversation with your Savior, the one who saved you out of your muck and your mire? The one who has seen you through some really hard places. The one who lovingly walks beside you even though you may ignore him. That's the one you're talking to. It should ease our anxiety when we're just speaking to him in front of everybody. You know what I try to do, especially when I get in a really big room? When I'm talking to him, I try to imagine that none of y'all are in here. And he is literally 
right in front of my nose, just me and him. I don't always have to do that, but there are times where I'm really anxious and I'm really nervous about having to do it, that that's what I have to go to. Because I have to remind myself, this is not about what everybody else hears. This is about me and God, me and Jesus, having that conversation, just me and him. It shouldn't be about praying to impress other people. I'm pretty sure Jesus talked about that. You are talking to him. Quite frankly, I don't care what you think about my prayers. That sounds really bad, but I'm not talking to impress you. <laughs> I'm having my conversation with him. I'm just giving you permission to be a part of it and hear what I have to say. So a steady group is important, by the way. A steady group of friends that are Bible-believing, God-fearing, trusted will hold you accountable type people. That's what we're looking for. Now, I'm not asking you to have a group of 10, 20, maybe just two, maybe just three, but find someone that you can trust, that you can just allow them to pour into you and you to pour into them and be honest and have prayer. That's what these people are doing. They just watched their friend ascend into heaven. They know the calling on their life now. It's massive. And what do they do? They find their friends and they pray. When's the last time you found someone to pray with you over something that was really big? Well, I don't know. That's really, that's embarrassing. Why? Would you not want somebody to come to you and pray for them? Why are we so prideful? Huh? Y'all didn't like that question, I see. Because <laughs> that's really what it is. I have to make sure everybody knows that I have it together. And let me tell you, that part of the sermon is really not for you, it's really for me. Because I am super prideful about letting people in to know what I'm dealing with and working through because I have to be very careful. But why should I have to be so careful? If I love you and trust you and you have my best interest at heart, why could I not open up and let you in? Because I'm just like you who have real human feelings and real human fears and I know people. Shame on me for letting that drive me in the direction that it drives me. That was just a little insight of me. And I know I'm not alone with that. I know it's where we all struggle. It's why when we ask for men's group, it starts off strong until we get personal and then it kind of dies off, right? It's why women's group it's really good until it gets really personal and then it's got, oh man, I, I, for, I forgot, I got, I, got, I got somewhere to be. Kids, I can't work with kids. We're in the waiting, are we not? What did they do in the waiting? They found a group and they poured into the, each other. Got a group of wonderful people here. We're all messy. We all have our stuff. Why can't we just do life together? 
You are thinking about that, aren't you? After this spectacular Jesus moment, a couple of things they did. They regrouped, right? They went back to their group. They went back to their comfy spot of people that they could trust, people that they knew. They refocused. How did they refocus? Did they get their plans out and the, the, the writings of Jesus out and the Psalms and all that? No, no, no. They refocused as they regrouped by going to Christ, by going to God, by praying. And they recommitted. Hey, we are in this for the long haul. We're doing this for him. We are here because he has called us to be here. So the second thing I want you to see this morning is take the time to belong to a trusted group. I know many of y'all just kind of cringed up right there. Many of y'all are waiting. Well, I know you talk about go groups. Well, when are you going to start? Why are you waiting on me to start go groups? Let me, let, me say, let me ask that again. Why are you waiting on me to start a group for you when you know you already need a group? Find some people, do life. We'll come alongside you. We'll, we'll get those started, I promise, but don't wait on me. Don't wait on us. You are grown men and women that have a voice. It always cracks me up. People, well, the church hadn't done this and the church hadn't done that. Come on, man. Anyway. Hebrews 10 says this, and let us consider one another. I love this verse. In order to stir up what? Love. Why do we need a strong, trusted group? Because we want to stir up love. Because a lot of times those trusted groups become negative Nancy groups. Sorry, Nancy. Right? They become a, let's get the pastor group. That's not what these groups are for. These groups are to stir up love. And when we hear that stuff, we kill it quick and we turn it into love. It's to stir up love and good works. These groups are not just about praying and holding each other accountable. Go do something with that group. Go serve. Good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. We always love just to cherry pick that part of the verse and say, you got to be a church. That's not necessarily what it's talking about. It's talking about don't forsake the gathering of the saints, whatever that might be. Not just Sunday mornings. As is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. In other words, challenge one another. Oh, I don't want to be challenged. I just want to come in, pray, do my thing, and leave. So you're telling me you don't want to grow is what I'm hearing. I want to grow. But man, is it painful, not fun, sometimes excruciating, until I get to the other side. And then it was well worth it. And so much more as what? As you see the day approaching, that same day that Jesus is going to be returning, the same day that the two men in white told the disciples, hey, stop standing here. Go do what he told you to do because it's coming. He's coming back. And it's the day that we are all waiting for. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Let's finish out this chapter because I know you all are ready to go eat. Verse 15, and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. That's a big upper room, man. And he said this. Now, I love this because it's Peter not necessarily just 
being arrogant Peter and taking charge, but he knows his role. He knows that God is with him, and he just stands up and says, okay, we got to do something. Men and brethren, and watch what he goes to. This scripture to be fulfilled, or had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before, um, before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Here's where he's quoting. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. And then Luke gives us a little bit of insight. So before, before I go any further, let me, let me just stop right here. This is so neat because Peter, who knows the scripture, obviously, brings something from the past that David wrote about to bring to their attention to let them know that this prophecy that was way back then, it was fulfilled. That's huge, just so you know. Verse 18, now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. Let's go to lunch. <laughs> and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. So we see what happens with Judas as he takes the money, he buys a field, and he hangs himself, and he falls, and he just busts open. Yummy. But David doesn't stop there. Excuse David. Peter doesn't stop there. He's still quoting David. He says, for it's written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, which that's exactly what happens, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. So he's remembering the prophecies of David, of David saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. The land's going to be desolate. Nobody's going to live in it, but somebody else has to take office. Somebody has to fill his spot. And so Peter says, hey, we're waiting on Jesus' return. We're waiting on the helper to come. We don't know what it's going to be, but we know what we're supposed to be doing right now in the waiting. He didn't wait for somebody to come to him and say, hey, Peter, remember this passage? Hey, Peter, remember what Jesus said or David said that we were supposed to be doing? Hey, Peter, remember this? Remember this? He didn't wait for somebody else to come tell him. He knew the scripture himself and he did what he was asked to do. So many churches wait for their pastor to tell them what scripture tells them that they're supposed to be doing or not doing. Again, don't wait on me. This is already speaking much louder than I could ever speak and far more clearer than I could ever try. It's already been told you what you're supposed to be doing. Verse 21, therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So Peter says, okay, guys, here's what scripture says. We see that Judas absolutely fulfilled the thing that David said. So therefore, if David called that long ago, he also called and said, hey, you need to fill this spot. So let's take the men that we have right here that's been with us the whole time, following Jesus with us as 12 as well, and let's choose somebody else. Are you with me? All right. Verse 23, and they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was named, surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen. Now, again, they're calling on God and they're acknowledging how God looks at people. 
How does God see people? What does he see? Their heart. He sees their heart. What do you see when you see people? That's a whole nother sermon, but we'll stay here just for a second. I see how they dress. I see how they act. I see how they walk, how they talk, where they go. You know, God sees all that too. But you know what he's most concerned with? Their heart. Doesn't give them permission to go and do all the things that they're doing. Doesn't give you permission as a Christian to go and do whatever you want to do just because God knows your heart. Because we must not trust our own heart. It is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But we can trust his word and the way that he leads us, it will not lead us astray because his word leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So they pray, God, you know the hearts, we need your help. And here's what we're asking. You already know the one that you want to take part in this ministry in verse 25. An apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, please do not see that last verse and say, sweet, I'm going down to Dover and I'm going to go cast my lots. I'm going gambling. It's not what this is about. Many people would say that casting their lots, it really means voting. That is not really what it means. It fits better, but it's not what it means. They literally would take a, a stone or a piece of wood, write the names on it that they were going to be choosing, and then put some empty ones in there and throw it all in uh, some kind of uh, basket or something. And they would trust God. God, you know who you want it to be. And they would give it to chance. But trusting that God would direct and they would choose until they found the name that needed to be chosen. And they chose Matthias. Little bit different than the way we do things, but that is the custom of the way that they did things. There was nothing wrong with that. So don't get all crazy and say, well, they gambled then. We can gamble now. No, I would be careful with that. That's a whole other sermon, by the way. And so we see that they followed the rules of engagement here. They used the past to help with their future. They looked back at what David said years, hundreds, maybe even thousands of years before. And he said, hey, this is what's going to happen to one of the disciples, one of the followers of God. They're going to break away. They're going to die. They're going to buy land. And they're going to they're they're give their life to that and, and do it in such a way that the land is just no good from here on out. And so they used that little prophecy, that statement, as it came true to propel them to do the next thing that was prescribed in there, of choosing another to follow. I'm all about forgetting a lot of my past, right? A lot of my past is useless to me, it's no good. But I'm also all for using some of my past to influence my future life. Because some of the past that I might want to discard teach me and inform me of the future decision that is coming. Don't do that again. Right? Or hey, do that again because that really worked well. I also use your past experiences as well to inform decisions that base or help my future 
I also use many of these past experiences that absolutely inform and instruct and encourage my future plans because this is where it's at. The past can help with the future and that is exactly what these disciples are doing. Because these prophecies were trusted, look what happens. You can trust future prophecies. The fact that we know Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. The fact that we can trust that prophecy, because it is not just documented in this book, by the way. It's documented on real historical documents, just so you know. And because we can trust that the prophecies long before Jesus were stated that he was coming, that a Messiah was coming, and that he would die and rise again and build a new kingdom and return, we can trust that because that actually happened, when we hear that he is coming back, we can trust that it's going to happen. The past prophecies coming true help us trust the prophecies that have yet to be unfolded. But we can also trust his commandments. When we look at the Beatitudes and it says things like, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We can trust that if we learn how to be meek in our spirit, we learn how to be kind, that we can inherit something from the kingdom of God that you can't find anywhere else. We can trust that when we hear in Philippians of putting our, the needs of others in front of our own, that our needs will be taken care of if we're all doing it the right way. There are so many different prophecies and truths in scripture that we can absolutely trust because past prophecies have come true and we can trust his promises and I love the promise that if I trust in his word that if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord of my life and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead that I will be saved I find great comfort in that simple truth And it's not just that one. There are so many others. Look at this verse. Oh, just kidding. So what we should be doing now is do what you know. While we're waiting, do what you know to do. And don't play the silly game of, well, I don't know. If you've been attending our church for any given amount of time, you've heard what we should be doing. And if you forget, let me give you a verse that will help you. Micah 6, 8. Do what is right, love being kind to other people, and walk humbly with God. In the waiting, if we're doing those three things, to me and my personal opinion, we are fulfilling the total will of God. And he will call us to do things out of that, that might stretch you, that might make you a little uncomfortable. But please don't forget, the same God that brought you into this world, that brought you into this relationship with him, is the same God that will walk with you through all of the things that he calls you to do. The same God. Do what you know to do. Stop playing the game of, well, I didn't know. Come on. You were old. That did not come out right. As soon as I started that sentence, I didn't like it. <laughs> That's funny. I'm trying to, like that, I don't normally get, I don't normally get uh, broken up like that, but that one, 
That one definitely came out not how I intended it. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Listen, yes, ma'am. I appreciate that. Thank you. We are all old enough to know better on a lot of things. Listen, it does not take very long for a child to know when they've done wrong. And they don't have the advantage that you have of being able to weigh out the positives and negatives of the decision that you're getting ready to make. You know better. Don't use the rule or the statement of, well, I just didn't know. Yeah, you did. You just wanted to do it. Let your past, let the past inform you of what you need to be doing now while you're waiting for his return. Because he is coming back. I love these two verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 2 says, Moreover, it is required in students, students, stewards, that one be found faithful. Okay, so stay with me here. You ready? We know he's coming back someday, right? Which means he's going to return and find us doing something. How should we be found? Faithful. The excuse of, well, I didn't know, God, it's probably not going to work very well. Because you have been told. You've seen it, you read it yourself, you've heard me say it. You need to be found faithful. Daniel chapter 6. I love this. Uh, we are studying Daniel right now uh, on Wednesday nights. And when I came across this, I just found it so intriguing. Look what it says. So Daniel is uh, about 80 years old at this point. Uh, he has been kind of in the background, not really serving much, but now he's kind of been brought back in with King Darius. And he's one of the, the top guys. And all of the men that are under him just don't like him. And they're trying to trap him to get him thrown into the lion's den. Remember that story? Well, look what it says in verse 4. So the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. They went through the historical documents. They looked at every aspect of his life. They looked over everything that was recorded about Daniel, trying to find something about him. Now, 80 years, he was taken captive about 15-ish, and he's 80 now. So what are we talking about, 65 years? Look what it says. They could find no charge or fault. Why? Because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. So not only did he live life and do life correctly, that they could not find any fault in him over 65 years worth, they couldn't even find a character flaw in this man. Why? Because he was faithful to his God. And while we are in the waiting, we need to be faithful. We need to be faithful. Faithful to what we know, faithful to what we don't know or understand, faithful to the fact that your Savior is coming back one day for you. We need to be found faithful. It's time to act, folks. It's time to get busy. But I don't know what to do. I just gave you Micah 6.8. Again and again and again. You do know what to do. 
you really do know what to do. The real question is, do you want to? Do you want to? As the praise team comes, I got some questions for you. Number one, first question for you is this, what are you looking at? These disciples were watching Jesus and they got so focused on that that they forgot about the other things that were supposed to be happening. What are you so focused on that you're not forward thinking? What are you staring at? What are you looking at? Question number two, who's your group? If you don't have a group, let's start one. I didn't have a group. I started one. I actually started two. doesn't make me special. just means I recognize that I need to be a part of a group. So I, well, actually, Sally and I started one. We're trying to help young marrieds. <laughs> we need somebody more experienced than us in there. And then I just meet with a bunch of young men right now. Why not? What's holding you back? Who's in your group? You got to talk to somebody. And your brain, probably not the person to talk to because there's about four or five of them in there. Question number three. Are you actively waiting by doing what you know? Or are you busy doing other things that you know you shouldn't? How are you actively waiting? Hopefully you're doing what you know. Let me pray for you this morning. God, I appreciate your word. and appreciate the truthfulness of it. Thank you for all that you do. I ask that you be with the hearts and the hearers this morning. That you move within their heart for whatever reason that you need to speak to them. I pray that they would hear you, but not just hear you, but respond in the way that they should. We love you. We praise you and give you permission to do your work in Jesus' name.